Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Listen, there's a reason the ultra-wealthy have been investing in fine wine for centuries. Historically stable returns and a lack of volatility make it stand out compared to traditional assets, especially during a downturn. But now you can invest alongside with them with Vint. Vint is an SEC-qualified investment platform that offers shares of the most sought-after wines in the world. So join the thousands of investors diversifying with fine wine and spirits. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. All right, we're back with another episode of Around the Coin. Today we have my good friend Greg Kalajesic on the line, who's the founder of Algolab and also an extreme endurance athlete who has been a big source of inspiration for me. So, well, Greg, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Great. great. Thanks for yeah, having I'm really me. Excited. I'm excited to do this. Yeah, and, me too. <laughs> uh, getting your story out there is uh, is inspiring. I'm sure it will be for a lot of people. <laughs> which you, story? Which a, story? <laughs> all of them, all of them. The more I learn, the more intriguing it is. Um, do you want to give a little background on, on your story and what – I think touching on the endurance piece is is just so interesting as well, but also how you got into the Algo Lab and, and where you want to take it. Uh, so going back to the beginning? Uh, you know, maybe an uh, overview of some of the highlights that got you where you are. So when I was, uh, when I was just young, um, after I graduated college, I you know, took a, just an engineering program in college, just a two-year kind of a diploma thing, and started working for an oil company, uh, here in Calgary, and I, I really did not like it at all. I mean, I, I should have been doing something creative, you know. That's always kind of was my thing growing up, and I really didn't like it. And so I quit and went off on my own as a freelance graphic designer. And, of course, like I knew nothing about a graphic design. I just wanted to do it. So I quit my job, and I started doing this. And, um, and well, as you can imagine – you know, practically starved to death for years because, you know, I mean, it's just, I, you know, I had no experience and uh, trying to grow this little company and trying to do something that I wanted to do and learning kind of along the way. And um, I, I, a cousin of mine worked for this uh, computer store, this Apple computer store um, in a city north of me. And he called me up and he said, hey, he said, Apple computer has just released this really super high resolution printer. So this would this would have been way back in the like the late 80s and the highest resolution printer that you could get back then was this you know 72 dot per inch uh, dot matrix printer and this was a 300 dot per inch laser printer. So it was a very first laser printer ever. He said, you should get one of these for your business because you can actually use it for typesetting. And so, you know, I went and took a look at it and I took a look, you know, it came with a Macintosh 512K computer. That was those little square beige, 
boxes where you you know just stick floppy disks in and out trying to load your programs in there yeah old school this predates you um i'm sure but this is like a long time ago and so you know i i thought this really is going to completely change my business because back then i was sending type out to professional typesetters was really expensive very time consuming and it wasn't really very flexible you know you had to uh, you had to put glue on the back of the type page and cut it up and paste it up onto your board. And, you know, this would, this would change everything because you could do your whole page layout on the, on the Macintosh computer. And then you could print it out as one, you know, final um, part piece of the laser printer. So I, I, I asked my dad if he could co-sign a lease and I bought one of these things. And I, you know, I still remember it was like 10,000 bucks and what are you using these for? To print advertisements for businesses? Yeah, you'd use it to print print advertisements. Yeah, exactly. So you could mm. I could actually lay out the entire ad right on the Macintosh computer, and this was unheard of before. So everything from borders to graphics to type to you know back then not really photographs because you couldn't really do that back then, but you could pretty much do everything. Um, and then you could do your photographs the traditional way and then sort of overlay the photograph into what you could print out. So it was quite revolutionary. The, the quality was a little crude. 300 dots per inch isn't that great compared to, you know, high resolution um, graphics now, but it was good enough. And I thought this is going to completely change my whole industry. And so I immediately became frustrated by not having access to the same library of digital typefaces that I used to have as a graphic artist using um, traditional sources of, uh, of that kind of content. And um, so I just started developing these typefaces for what I thought was going to be um, a new market. And so it, it, it did, it became the desktop publishing revolution and um, that entire industry switched over. And so I pivoted and started developing what, what was known as content software for that market. Um, so that would be digital typefaces. We eventually got into um, digitizing stock photography and we would uh, distribute that on CD-ROM disc because of course this was way before the internet uh, so we were the first company to digitize stock images and put and make them available to our customers on CD-ROM disk. So long story short, uh, about 10 years later, um, my company had just exploded and uh, we I sold the company to Adobe Systems. And um, and yeah, and so then, you know, that I sort of sort of... What year was that? Uh, that would have been like 1998 uh, or something like that. Got it. So before the boom, before the the real internet boom and implosion. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> before the whole, all of that. This was still before internet. So we we were distributing our um, our software on floppy disks and CD-ROM disk, and we were innovative in that we our our marketing our primary marketing method was by catalog so we produced these really cool um it's called the image club catalog and we produce these really cool catalogs and we'd send them out to our customers around the world and then they would phone us phone our 1-800 line and order direct and we had we were back in those days we were um calgary's largest federal express cu- customers so they'd back a big Federal Express semi-trailer into our um, 
our lot every day and load the whole thing up and then, you know, basically take it and just and deliver it. So we were fairly innovative as far as how we distributed our product by this catalog. And, um, and yeah, so it's kind of, I was, you know, faced, I was sort of lucky to, to be able to have that, you know, be able to make the decision as to whether um, I wanted to just continue on in the business world or take some time off. And so I decided since our kids were, were quite young then um, and, and Helen was and my wife, Helen was, uh, we were in the process of selling her company too at the same time. And so we decided we would take some time off and just travel with the kids. And uh, that's kind of when I started getting into endurance sports. And yeah, what initially drew you into that? So you were, and you decided with the time off that you're going to, I'm curious how you transitioned from, I have some cash and some time to, I want to go and, and break world records. What was your, <laughs> was it, was it a gradual process of just growing more and more competitive and then seeing totally. that goal? And Yeah. I mean, completely at, at first it was like nothing more than, um, you know, I feel fat <laughs> and I, I feel <laughs> like all of these years of sitting behind a desk has produced this guy who gets really sick every year, you know, when the flu season comes around and I just don't feel like this is a good plan, uh, to go, to move forward. And so, you know, I, I thought I've got to do something. And so, uh, it was, it was kind of more like, uh, you know, my, my, um, a friend of mine said, said, Hey, let's go do it. Let, let's do a triathlon. I thought, oh, what the hell? Sure. Let's, let's go do it. And so I, I don't even know what I, how I figured out how to train for it. I don't even remember. I think I, I may have even hired a coach, I think back in the days and it was just a, an Olympic distance triathlon. And I, I was so, I, I couldn't believe like it, it took me, you know, six months of training just to be able to run, 10 K and to bike 40 K and to, I mean, I wasn't a swimmer at all. And I had to, I had to learn how to swim. So it was through that process and of just doing the training and then realizing that, you know, if, if you, if you take something that you thought was impossible, cause really to me back then I was 200 pounds. Now that kind of stuff was just impossible. And to take something that you thought was impossible and to break it up into very small day by day kind of little chunk, manageable chunks. And you realize that all of a sudden you're, you're doing it, you know, race day comes along and you're, you're actually, you, you compete, you do the distance. And it's like, I, I just was so pumped about that. I thought this is amazing and kind of went from there and decided, well, I want to try. Um, I want to just go for an Ironman and just continue going. And so I, I did. Um, I did my first Ironman in 2000. I think it was Ironman Florida. And, um, that was an amazing experience. And again, it was the same thing. Like, can I run a marathon? Gosh, you know, I, I never thought I could run a marathon ever. And here I am running a marathon in <laughs> Ironman. I mean, you know, you've done Ironman and you've been through that whole process, right? Mike, you've been through, yeah. you know, yeah, and, yeah, you, no, I agree with you. It's definitely a, it's a gradual state. You know, you're like, I can do a 5k and a 10k and a half and a full and a marathon, but you, you're different than most people. Most people get to like, you know, I can do a half marathon or a marathon. And then, and then there's people who keep going into the triathlon world and do, you know, like I did a, a full Ironman. Uh, but then you just kept going. What, what are some of the big accomplishments you feel at this point that are 
yeah, so of, uh, on your placards. Yeah, so like I did, so I did my first Ironman, and then I just was like, I wanted to do another one just because I loved, I loved the race, but I loved the lifestyle. I loved the training, having some reason to get up and go outside and train. I just loved it, and so I did another, I did another. And then, you know, each one I was slowly kind of getting a little bit faster and a little bit faster. And I thought, you know, I bet if I really focused hard uh, on this, like I, like I did with my company, building my business, if I, if I applied that same level of focus, I bet that I could, maybe I could actually make it to world championships. Cause back then, you know, Ironman Kona was the, the big thing. You would look up to all your Ironman triathlete friends and the ones that had been to Kona. Wow. You know, it was like, it was like that. And I thought, I wonder if I could do that. So I did, I, you know, put together a really detailed plan from based on everything that I knew about training that I learned, um, over the Ironmans that I'd done, it, it actually ended up taking me like three or four years and 12 Ironman races to finally, wow. um, in 2006, I, I placed third in my age group um, at Ironman Arizona and I qualified for Kona. So uh, that's how I kind of got to that level. It, was, it wasn't easy. Some guys... Um, you know, have a, you know, it take, takes them a lot less to get to that point, but it was difficult for me. Um, so I, I kind of went from there and then uh, just so you, you know that with, with the bike, a lot of your efficiency on the bike is your aerodynamic, uh, is aerodynamics, right? And your position on the bike has a lot to do with that. I learned a lot about aerodynamics and how important that is uh, to your efficiency and your speed on the bike in, in Ironman. And I just sort of got to wonder, I, I just thought, you know, if there weren't any rules at all, what would be the limit of what you could a- actually accomplish um, regarding converting human power to speed uh, using nothing more than aerodynamic uh, design. And so I started kind of really getting into this and studying it. And, um, I ended up building this designing and building this human powered vehicle, uh, which uh, I think you've probably seen pictures of it before. It's kind of like a missile. Have you seen pictures? Of yeah, it? we'll include, we'll include links in a picture in the, in the podcast description, but it, to me, it looks like a kind of like a UFO type object. That's that you can barely see the wheels. It'd be as if you took a regular bike and then dropped it back so it's an inclined position, and then wrapped it in a airfoil, you know, like almost a, a round, silvery, missile-looking uh, wrapper, which I imagine has the optimal uh, co- drag coefficient. Exactly, yeah, and that's what it ends up being. Like when you, we, you know, I would work with guys that had. Um, not actual wind tunnels, but virtual wind tunnels uh, and software. And this is where the design eventually came from is, is these uh, virtual wind tunnels. And that's what it ends up looking like, like a basically kind of like a, a elongated bullet, uh, very pointy in the front. <laughs> Which is crazy. I mean, so then you take that and then you say, I want to break the world record for the farthest distance traveled in 24 hours. Yeah, the farthest distance traveled in 24 hours by only human power. So that's kind of important because there can't be any type of sales. You you have to do it. You have to do your run on a circular course to negate the effect of wind. 
Um, it has to be flat, which is another reason to do it on a circular course. So um, design, built this thing, uh, trained, uh, took two attempts, but I ended up breaking the world record in um, a little racetrack in Eureka, California. It was a quarter mile quarter mile loop. And I went around and around this quarter mile loop for 24 hours without stopping. And I, I ended up traveling like 1,047 kilometers, which is like, ends up being something like 30 miles an hour average speed for 24 wow, hours nonstop. Miles? So that's about 600 miles? Yeah, 600 miles. miles. 600 miles, yeah. Wow. And that was 24 hours straight, 30 miles an hour. And yeah. is that still the record or did someone... No, it's been, it has been broken many times since then. So it's, it's, it's a, yeah, universities, European universities. And uh, I think they, I think the European, some European university has that record now, but it's gone between Canada, the U S I think and the U and uh, Australia and the, and uh, Amsterdam, I think a few times, but. This is crazy. I mean, so then you take that and you say, I want to do this on water and. Yeah. So I thought uh, the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. I thought the same thing. I thought, wow, this is really, the, the whole project was just so cool. Like it was everything. It was engineering. It was physical training. It was trial failure. It was teamwork. Lots of teamwork. It was like team getting people to help me design it. You know, and I just loved it so much. I went on and wanted to do the same thing on water because there there was existing twenty four hour human powered records for water. And generally, they were kayaks, like really super efficient um, surf ski kayaks. And so um, I wanted to break that record. And so I got together with this uh, a friend of mine who's based out of Australia, uh, engineer, and he we together designed this human powered boat. And, um, and I, and I did the same thing. I went out and, you know, took me two, two attempts to, to do it, but I did the second attempt. I broke the record and we, um, got a survey a surveyor out to mark a course, a circular course out in a lake in Montana, this big giant circle. And uh, basically measured the buoys out on the lake. And I went around and around in circles for 24 hours and, and broke that record. I mean, just seeing, you know, seeing the boat myself and seeing the amount of work and attention you put into it is it's quite the undertaking. I mean, it's it's not something even your most in-shape endurance athlete has to go through a high level of uh, commitment financially and, and time-wise just to even jump in the water and have a chance. And so, like you said, it seems like you're unique. Um, the thing you're uniquely good at is combining it hard work for a long period of time with a real quantitative or engineering mindset and then not being afraid to ask other people for help. I feel like those, those three things together are pretty, you've taken them and put them, you've used them in the right areas. You know, you, you haven't you certainly haven't wasted your, uh, your gifts. Um, so yeah, I think that I, record. I do. I think that's kind of, I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head. I'm like, I've never really considered myself, um, exceptionally intelligent or anything like that. I think if anything, I just don't quit. I just yeah. come up with something I want to do. And I, I just like pound my head against the wall until it's done and learn along the way. Uh, I'm sure there's, I'm sure that, you know, you could say there are a lot faster ways to get to my destination than the route that I ended up taking. <laughs> but that's just, <laughs> that's part of the journey, man. <laughs> yeah. 
And so the meanwhile, you're, I guess, afterwards, you start doing long distance, like 200, 300 mile river races, 100 mile Alaska run races. Um, that that seemed to be more one off where you're you're focusing on those individual challenges. And then simultaneously, yeah. I want to get to Algolab soon, but you're mm-hmm. simultaneously doing these while starting another another company. Yeah, so I exactly. Yeah. So I started doing these all these other endurance races and I, I wanted to see if I could run a hundred miles. And so I started training for ultra marathons and started at a 50 miler and worked my way up to a hundred and failed a few times before I finally made my hundred miles. And then, you know, kind of went from there and uh, we started doing these crazy winter ultras, which are just, I mean, a lot of people haven't even heard of them. They're up in Alaska and you have to pull a sled behind you um, with all your survival gear in it <laughs> in the middle of winter. Um, they're crazy. And, and, uh, yeah, so I finished the hundred miler in, in Alaska in February, got down to minus 30 at night. It took me 30 hours nonstop. Um, and then the next year I did, uh, there's another race like that. It was a hundred K in Alaska and, um, the conditions were so bad because it had warmed up and there was a huge snowstorm the day before so you know you know what happens you can imagine when you combine a ton of snow with warm temperatures it's just like snow deep sticky mashed potatoes and um everybody ended up quitting (laughs) i was the only i was the only one that finished i won the race but i was the only one that finished the race that's remarkable (laughs) That's, I mean, that's just like, it just goes to show your, I feel like they should just do a documentary on you <laughs> <laughs> at this point. You, you won because you're the only one who finished the race. Exactly. Miles. Exactly. Wow. And dur- so during the race, are you, are you thinking about work? I know you listen to podcasts and audiobooks. Are you, you're not simultaneously typing on a computer while you're up there, right? So you're, how do you balance running Algolab and training for these endurance sports? I, it's a, it's a requirement really is like in order to stay sane, um, managing algo lab, which is, you know, essentially a hedge fund these days. Uh, I need the breaks. I need to be able to go off and do, you know, a 20 mile training run or a a bike ride or something like that. Even if it is just in my home gym, I have to be able to do that just to stay sane or I, I wouldn't be able to keep, everything in perspective. I, I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. You know exactly what I'm talking about because it's the same for you in the things that you do in your business. And, um, and I know you're still training, you're still very active and you know exactly what that feels like and how it's almost a requirement just to keep, to keep you on track and keep you balanced. Right. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Uh, be amazing. So let's shift gears to Algolab. Tell me, how, how did you, uh, you find this opportunity one? And then what, what was the insight to, to start building it? And how, how did you, it seems like you built this yourself or a small team. I'd be curious to hear how you built it as well. But, yeah. So yeah. back, so we have to back up to when I went kind of back to the time when I sold my company and then was kind of faced with this, decision, you know, what, what do I do? How do I invest this relatively modest nest egg um, so that we can live off 
off of this because my, my plan wasn't to go back to work. You know, I wanted to be able to continue to live and do the things I wanted to do, all these adventures and all these other things. And so, you know, I just kind of started looking into what are you going to do? Um, doing some research. I, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to just dump it all in the stock market that scared the living daylights out of me. You know, after you start doing research and you, you're looking at periods of like 20 years in the past, historically, where the, the markets have just gone flat, you made nothing in Twitter. Like I just, it was just too risky. Not to say that that, you know, I was sure that that was going to happen. And obviously it didn't happen, but I didn't know that back then. I still don't know that now, actually. You know, you just don't know what's going to happen. We've been through how many periods of a 40 to 50% um, a decline in the value over the last 20 years. I mean, that is just too risky. And so I ended up kind of uh, um, learning about, um, trading and the futures markets. And so I started to develop my own uh, trading strategies using all of the um, uncorrelated diversified markets available in the futures industry. Um, So I started doing that way, way, way back then. And sort of kind of as I was doing all these other things, I was working on trading systems and uh, actually applying them and connecting the trading strategies to my brokerage account. And, and, you know, that kind of thing. And then I would say probably 2014, 2015 timeframe, I thought, you know, now it's time where I really need to get serious about all of that. Felt like I'd spent the last decade, the previous decade, just playing with it without any real solid goal in mind. And I thought this is that's enough of that. Let's just sit down. And I sort of cleared my plate and cleared my schedule and cleared my desk and spent the next year, two years, just really, really researching what I have, what I had done in the past, what really was working, what wasn't working, developing the tools, the software tools that would allow me to test it and uh, get some statistical significance out of what was actually working, what wasn't working. And so I did that. I spent lots of time and I went through and developed this environment, this uh, software platform that would allow me to to develop and test strategies and then compare them, compare the results to to random um, strategies to basically statistically quantify the results that I was getting called the Monte Carlo test. I don't know if you've ever, if you're familiar, familiar with that area at all. So the, yeah, help me uh, just definition wise. So futures, I guess one, what exactly is a future and why, why futures in particular? Well, okay. So f- futures, futures markets are the oldest um, markets. They were there before the capital markets, before the stock exchange. So in futures, it's a way for a, like a farmer to hedge his crop. So what you would do is you'd make a make a deal with another party in a, con- a contract, and um, your other party would, you know, in the contract would say, "Well, I, I agree to buy your crop when it comes out of the ground in three months at today's price." And so what what that would do is that allows you to hedge the as a farmer, it allows you to hedge the risk because you locked in the price today. And it allows your 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 counterparty to to speculate on the price of corn or whatever your crop is, and that's kind of where the futures markets started. Um, 
and now the futures markets are everything. They're, they're stock indexes, they're agricultural commodities, they're energy, oil, crude oil, heating oil, gold, platinum, um, everything. Weather is even is a futures contract. You can you wow. can actually bet on weather. Uh, there's all kinds of so futures. Betting is betting really a form of. Would would you say that betting and futures are synonyms to some degree? The the idea that I can you know bet you whether it's going to rain tomorrow is similar to betting you whether or not corn is going to be at a certain price. But no, it's different, right? Because a future, you'd say I agree to pay you if uh, I agree to pay you three dollars per pound for corn, for instance. Uh, whereas betting would be different, right? It's depending on the outcome. I'm either going to pay you or not pay you. Um, I think, I think at its roots, futures is essentially betting because, um, when you're, when you're buying or when you're entering a long futures contract, for example, so you're betting that the S and P 500 is going to go up in price from where you entered the contract in your counterparty is hoping that it will go down in price. Essentially, um, no money is actually exchanging hands. Uh, when you're actually, you may have a half a million dollars worth of S&P 500 s- stocks that are on the line here. Um, and no money is exchanged hands until the contract closes. And then only the difference in price exchanges. So I'll have to pay my counterparty if I'm wrong you know, money will be debited out of my bank account and credited to his bank account uh, to the amount that I'm wrong. So because we're not actually putting this money, so when you're, you know, you're basically buying $500,000 worth of S&P 500 stocks, you're not really buying that $500,000. That money isn't going to other investors of stocks that have bought the stocks that are selling you their stocks. So the, the, the cash isn't really going into the kind of the, the system. So it kind of is like a bet. I mean, mm. it, it really yeah. is. It's like a bet. Yeah, just going from your, yeah, there's no, it doesn't go into the system is a good no. way to say it. Yeah. It doesn't it go into the system. It, it, to the, other. It, the futures markets are huge. They're massive, absolutely so massive. Just, and contractually it's all there. Like you, you do, you when you enter, you know, if you're long five hundred thousand dollars worth of S and P five hundred, because ultimately you're responsible for that. If the value goes to zero, you're going to have to come up with five hundred thousand dollars worth of S and P five hundred stocks. So yes, but that you know, it's not like it's more like a bet than anything else. And you're only ever going to be paying the counterparty um, your losses or, or taking your gains from the counterparty. It doesn't really go into the system. So, and what what was the what's the attraction of futures to you? So, say you're you're kind of in this point of sort of like pseudo designing Algo Lab in the early beta stages. Are futures do they offer some unique value proposition that say equities don't or other other yeah. forms? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's huge. So the the futures market is it's very um, cost efficient to trade a futures contract. So for example, I can trade an S and P five hundred contract 
you know, basically controlling. You know, so I think they're, the E-mini now is like $250,000 worth of S&P 500 stocks for probably $12. That's my that's my total cost of doing that. That's all my commissions and everything all in. So it's very inexpensive um, to 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 uh, buy or sell a futures contract. Um, it's very liquid. There's lots of volume there, so there's not a whole lot of slippage in in that industry. Um, so it's liquid enough. It's it's efficient enough as far as it's inexpensive to to trade. Um, there, the ease of going long or short is especially attractive because as a trader, I don't care if something's going up or down. Uh, I just want to be able to either short it or go long. And, you know, in, in the stock market, yeah, you can go short, but there are all kinds of limitations there that you don't face if you're going long. In the futures markets, there has to be an equal number of short sellers as there are long sellers. So it, it, there's, it's an equal opportunity to go long or short, just as easy. So that's a really attractive thing. The other thing is that the futures markets offers a, a, a huge universe of uncorrelated markets to trade in. And so one of the, uh, one of the reasons why we've been why my strategy has been why algo lab strategy has been successful is because we trade the same strategy in many many uncorrelated markets simultaneously which is really really important i, I call it the magic of diversification um so that's really really important the futures markets offer that so corn you can buy corn you can sell the s p 500 and you can buy soybeans you know or bonds mm -hmm. You know, so that's really attractive. And then the, the last thing, which is a big deal, is there's leverages built into that um, whole um, system, the futures markets. And so it's very, very easy to leverage up or leverage down and build that in as part of your strategy, uh, depending mm -hmm. on, on the, the depending on the environment that you're trading in. You can change your leverage so you very easily. And you're 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 thesis initially was that you could build a software program or at least develop a thesis and a, a strategy, which then turned into a, a software algorithm to beat the market, right? Because I imagine the competition is, I, what I'm imagining is that there's a lot of automated algorithmic trading out there. And for someone to jump in and think they're just going to beat the machine, so to speak, is crazy and almost a guaranteed way to lose money. And I, I wonder, is that reality? Are mo are, is most of the trading and futures algorithmic? And if it is, did you just feel that you could build a smarter system? Um, I'm really, I'm actually really very skeptical about a lot of um, pre-packaged black box sort of uh, futures trading strategies or systems. And I always have been because I've, I've had, I've experienced them in the past and just know from being a developer, I know how easy it is to develop a strategy that's curve fitted and looks really good on paper, performs really, really well on historical data, but falls apart when you start trading it in the real world. And so and you, you understand, um, I'm sure you understand what curve fitting, what I mean when I say curve fitting, right? Yeah, that would be the idea that there's a, a previous data set and you're matching the curve 
based on a system of uh, yeah curve curve tracking, right? Yeah. So yeah, just yeah. So it just basically means that um, you're basically optimizing all of the variables or parameters in your strategy to your historical data and you're essentially memorizing the historical data. So you're producing a wildly profitable trading system, which is simply just uh, by chance because you found uh, the best curve to fit that. And that never works going forward. Um, A really good explanation of what curve fitting is, is, uh, is there's a, there's a story called, um, oh, what is it called? I forget what it, I forget the name of it, but what it was, was that, um, oh, the Redskins rule. That's what it's called, the Redskins rule. So the Redskins rule is, is something like if, um, yeah, I, I'm, <laughs> you're going to have to cut this out because I, I forget the details of that. And oh, I, we'll add it. We'll add it in the, uh, the show notes. To, yeah, to the, added in the show it, notes because it is it is interesting. It's an interesting example of it's a rule that you can use to predict um, who's going to win the presidential election based on um, the last home game for the Redskins, whether they won the home game or they lost the last home game. That is a predictor of who's going to win the next presidential election. Of course, it's spurious. Oh, is this causation versus correlation? Exactly. So exactly. So it's correlated, but it's correlated simply because we've been able to look at the universe of historical data and simply sift through it with a massive computer and pick out a bunch of things that correlate. It doesn't mean they're actually correlated. It's just that that's what curve fitting is, is taking your parameters of your trading system and optimizing them to work perfectly with historical data. So I guess what kind of what my point is, is I'm not I'm not suggesting that all uh, trading systems available are curve fitted, but I'm suggesting that a lot of them are very curve fitted, a lot more curve fitted than you would think even if they're profitable um, in real time. And that is simply because if you take enough systems, um, you're going to eventually find some systems that are continuing to exhibit profitability, even though they're just curve fitted. And it gives you the, it gives the, uh, the customers, the public, the illusion that these are actual valid, um, you know, predictive type systems. Is is the algorithm? Is your is the system you built the algorithm to dictate when to buy and sell and for how much in these futures? Is that would you view it as a uh, a, a linear or or a progressive strategy? So it's in some ways more sophisticated or complex than the existing methodology. Or did you see something completely new? Are you is there something that that wasn't being done previously that you're utilizing? Or is it more you're just adding on a layer of uh, thought and complexity and sophistication to your Hon- system? Honestly, if if there's anything that we're doing that hasn't been done before, it's we're adding simplicity. We're at, we're we're increasing the robustness of our strategies to prevent any chance of curve fitting. If if anything, that's what we're doing more so than making it more complicated. So it's it's kind of 
Um, it's hmm. opposite so of what you would think. Fitting. What's that? You, you're you're removing curve fitting. Yep. From We're removing to- curve fitting by simplifying and making the strategy more robust. So um, we've got a fairly simple strategy. Um, when I say robust, it means it's very very simple. One or two variables that we've optimized, and that's it. Um, what makes it work is, is isn't the ne- isn't necessarily the strategy or our edge. It's the fact that we leverage our edge on multiple uncorrelated markets simultaneously, um, and we control our risk in a very rigid fashion. So those things combined make it a consistently profitable system. It isn't necessarily the edge, and that's again a little bit unintuitive. People kind of tend to think that, oh, you've discovered, you know, some secret sauce or some secret yeah. formula. And but that actually, that's not true. Our basic strategy, you would be really surprised at how simple it actually is. And um, can you say what these variables are? Well, you know, stop me, of course, is there anything that you want to keep private, but are there what are those two variables that you track? Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get into details there. Aside from just saying that you'd be very, very surprised at how simple they are. And if if I showed you, and you know what, I do this in in our uh, presentations to customers. I show them we take our strategy and we apply that strategy on in a back test for one market, say uh, crude oil, for example. We'll run that strategy on crude oil, and I will show the resulting profit and loss graph curve. And it is all over the place. I mean, it is not something you would want to invest your money in. It's not something you would want to risk your capital on because yeah, at the very end of the day, it makes a little bit of profit, but in between the start and the finish, it's up and down. It's like a friggin' roller coaster. Um, so there's just no way you would trade that. And so what I do is I say, okay, well, let's take a look at what happens when we combine two uncorrelated markets together using the same strategy. So I throw corn in there. So this is trading a curve now, trading corn and crude oil. When I say simultaneously, I mean that we trade them. Whenever there's a trade for corn, we take it. Whenever there's a trade for crude oil, we take it. We take all trades for both symbols. Um, Then you're going to notice that the ending profit is a little higher and the curve is a little smoother. And it just keeps getting better and better the more markets you add to that um, oh, to your so mix. First is kind of the the more yeah the more markets level out the earnings. Yeah. Would that be a way, way to describe it? It smoothens out the equity curve, so it reduces the drawdowns and increases the profits. It's it's magic. It's the magic of diversification, and and that's more important than the the edge or the strategy. If you have a strategy that even just works a little bit, if you can apply that strategy to many, many uncorrelated markets simultaneously, um, and you can't do that unless you've got some, you know, computer system running, it's impossible to do manually. So that's all part of the whole thing. It's like, if you had to guess, what percentage of the volume or number of trades in the futures market is automated versus manual? In the futures markets, I'm going to say I, I, you know, I don't want to guess because I've heard um, 
I've heard numbers like 90% of all the trades, you know, on the New York Stock Exchange are um, algorithmic trades. But I believe that that's a little bit false because it gives you the impression that um, there are all these algorithmic trading systems generating 90% of all the trades on the New York Stock Exchange. What actually is going on here is that, uh, you know, a hedge fund manager may go, uh, yeah, let's get rid of or let's, you know, get rid of our uh, of our Apple computer or whatever. Um, what they'll do is they'll use an algorithmic trading system to help them exit that position. But the decision to exit the position is is made by a person. I still believe that most of the trading done is done in a discretionary fashion. And I believe it's executed by algorithms. And that's what gives this, I think that's what's producing this misleading uh, metric that most of the trades are algorithmic. I don't really think that's true. May may be true with the futures markets, but um, I know just that the equities markets in general, I don't think that that's the case. Yeah. And in the case with Algolab, someone puts in, there's some minimum, so say they put in 100K as an investment. And then they, there's no decisions. I, I, I suppose they control risk, right? That's their input risk yeah. in the amount. And then from yeah, there, exactly. Like, yeah. So, it. yeah. So when we, when I um, started the company Algolab, we were licensing our trading software to our customers and essentially it's a cloud-based system. So they take control of their uh, trading environment with a website a web page basically and the kind of controls that they had is they could change the number of contracts that they were trading that's basically controlling their leverage so they had they were in control of that they could um, start or stop their trading system anytime they wanted just by pushing a button so a lot of our customers did that they kind of felt oh this week's going to be a bad week because whatever we just came off of a high so I'm you know we're ready for a little bit of a drawdown now so I'm going to pause and see if I can skip over the drawdown so they were in control of that they could do that they could also turn certain symbols on or off they could run a back test with the software, um, test our strategy on uh, all the symbols, and you know, th- look and you know, see. Well, gold's been performing really well over the last month. I'm going to put all my money in gold, you know, this month. And you know, they could, you could do all that. They didn't yeah. do that well. <laughs> yeah, but they couldn't change any of the variables in the strategy itself. The algorithm itself was kind of was is canned. It's uh, and and hidden. It's like a black box, but they could control the the the, the deployment of that. Um, they could you know go. So you know we had some customers, for example, um, some customers you know had a, um, a stock portfolio that they wanted to to protect or to hedge, um, and so they would trade the S and P five hundred index and the Nasdaq index futures contracts short only. Um, which is a pretty effective hedge for their for long only stock portfolio. So they would just turn those markets on and turn them on for short trades only. So that's an example of what you could do with the with the settings. But at the end of the day, you know, um, we always ran uh, we always ran some f- actual funded accounts uh, that were my accounts alongside all of the customers' accounts that never. Uh, changed from the default settings. So we never paused. We never changed the leverage. We never 
changed from the default setting of all the symbols long and short. And nobody has ever um, beat, uh, outperformed the, the house accounts, either, house, wow. either one of the two house accounts. So it does so say the- a lot about the algorithm itself that you cannot beat yeah. the algorithm. And we another, f- another feature in the software is the ability to manually exit a position anytime you want. So we, a lot of customers use that to try to uh, do better than the, the natural algorithmic exit. And it's, you know, they'd say, oh, well, gosh, you know, we're, we usually make $5,000 per trade. This trade looks like it's at $5,000. I'm going to exit it right now rather than waiting for the trade to slip back to a $4,000 profit before the software exits it. Even those guys never beat the performance of the algorithm. At the end of the day, the algorithm default wins. Yeah. <laughs> I love that says more about the algorithms or the humans. Uh, <laughs> exactly. It says more about the humans. Yeah. It does. So are, it does. Are there other, so this is an established business model, right? There are other companies who make cloud-based, would you call it black box futures market trading tools and so the container is not unique. It's more or less the, the algorithm is where you feel the value has been largely created or do you feel the, like I'll say, I think Wealthfront, for instance, and Betterment, those are two interesting companies because they, they seem, from my view, they seem to win because they had mass appeal and it was extremely easy to use. So a lot of their innovation was in the, 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 the user experience probably the same with Robinhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, behind the scenes, you have to do a lot to create a simple UI for people. But the idea of just dropping money in Wealthfront and then deciding what your risk tolerance is and letting Wealthfront manage everything behind the scenes, it's pretty appealing. And uh, and I, w- I wonder what you think about that, if that's a similar mindset or if, what you think of those, that, the, the, those styles of companies. It is... There, there is specifically with the futures markets. There is um, another software company that does a, something similar to what Algolab does, but uh, the way that they the way that they structure their offering is um, they're sort of the go between the middleman between a systems strategy developer and a customer or trader or user of that system. So when you go there, you have access to hundreds of trading systems and you can choose whatever trading system you want. It's like looking through a catalog of different trading strategies Hmm. and their results, their performance. And you end up picking what you want and you can trade that. My criticism, so we're we're offering the same thing except you could you could sort of consider what we're offering as a curated trading system. So we we offer two trading systems and they're both curated by me. And they're, you know, we trade them with real money. And that's all that's all we we you have. When you get a situation where you've got the world of software strategy developers contributing, you don't really know what you're going to get. Um, chances are you're going to get all kinds of curve fitted strategies in there. And it may, you know, you get enough of those curve-fitted, bogus, random strategies in there. You're going to have a few that are going to be making real money. And there still doesn't mean they're going to continue to make money in the future. It's kind of like, it's kind of like mutual funds, right? You, you look at the top performing 10 mutual funds of the last 10 years. 
they're never the same ones that will be on the top performing list for next yeah. year. And that's simply because there's so many mutual funds. There's going to be, just by random chance alone, a list of 10 that have been that have been at the top of the list every year. That's just the that's uh-huh. statistics, yeah. right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. They're not necessarily better. They're just lucky. They're just picked. Exactly. There's The sample size is so huge that you're, you're statistically certain certain to find. And in fact, you can compare it to a statistical random uh, chance Monte Carlo test and it's exactly the same result. So, you know, that's kind of what's going on with, I think, a lot of these other um, systems, trading system uh, offering, you know, firms is that they offer so much, it's not curated and you, it's like mutual funds. Yeah, you can pick really great ones that look great, but probably just great because there's so many of them that chance yeah. permits a bunch of them, 10 of them to look fantastic. Of course, you could make that argument about Algolab too. Uh, you could say, oh, well, you know, it's performed really, really well over the last four years um, because something has to, but it's the only one. Um, so and, you're, and it's not just lucky, right? It, there is a level of insight you calibrated these variables to that that exposes some uh, trading strategy that wasn't being utilized in, in, in previously. Am I, I saying that yeah, the right way? I believe so. I believe so. Sure. Without knowing for sure, one hundred percent, I believe that's why we've been successful. Is we've put this combination uh, together that hasn't really been done before in the same way that we're doing it. Um, mm. Not to say that you know there there haven't been others who have uh, developed the same basic strategies or edges, but they're just applying it in a much different way than we're applying it. And I think that's responsible for a a major reason as to why we've been successful is the way that it's all put together, uh, not necessarily each individual piece. And can you say how many, some sort of traction indicator of the company, whether it be the amount of money managed under the platform or how many people are using it or revenue or some? Yeah, so we got, yeah, we got to a point in, uh, late 2018, uh, where we had uh, I think 100 customers, so it wasn't that big, and we'd grown quite quickly um, that year, 2018. And I think we were just under 15 million, 15 million in total assets. And I don't want to say I can't say assets under management because that would imply that we were um, we were managing that capital, managing. which of course we weren't. These are individual traders using licensing our software in complete control of our of that software and it's their money and their brokerage accounts not you know we're not in control of that and i gotta be very very clear about that because um all the lawyers listening please take note yeah because this, this <laughs> is a software program you're licensing the software you're in yeah. control of the software you can turn it on you can turn it off you make the connection between your brokerage account we don't have access to your capital um so it's definitely we're not advising here we're it sounds we're like you said that a hundred times Oh, yeah. I've said it many, many times. We have to be very, very careful about that. So, in fact, uh, so, you know, we reached that point and then, um, you know, we we were doing, you know, quite well. I can say that um, I can say that my own proprietary account, you know, over three years, I was over 250 percent 
of return in in just in just over three years. So you know the the algorithm was performing very well. I mean, you know, like definitely better than um, your eight percent average S and P five hundred. Um, stock market return. Wasn't the market growing very quickly at that point? Was it better than the market? Or I'm also curious to hear how it has been in the recent crash. Uh, Yeah, no, it's been great. It's been good in the recent crash. Yeah, no, we've been, we've been, um, we've been performing really well. So uh, what we did was we have shifted, we pivoted. um, And in late 2019, or summer, I should say, summer 2019, um, I registered uh, as a commodity trading advisor in, in the U.S. And so in the U.S., we offered managed accounts only. So we are advising, uh, we are managing accounts in the United States now. Um, where, and whereas in Canada, we're still um, offering software licenses, but we're not actively marketing that business at all anymore. Um, we're more actively marketing the, the advisory business in the U.S., um, so, hmm. so, and that, where that differs is, uh, simply, you know, you, if we're managing your account, you've got no control. So I have, I'm the manager, I'm the advisor. I, I take full control of all the accounts. So You're that's the benevolent the, dictator of all my, what's that? Sorry. <laughs> You're the benevolent dictator. <laughs> I'm the benevolent dictator. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's the big difference there. And plus the fees that we, uh, are charging, um, as, uh, as advisors, uh, are, more than we were able to charge as software company because as software company you're charging uh, software. What are, what are the what are the fees? Uh, the software license fees. Um, they've I've geez I have to look. I think like three three hundred dollars a contract, so three per month. Got it. So if I wanted to invest, say a hundred thousand, I could I could pay three hundred per month. Yes, it will be about three hundred per month, and you'd be trading one contract. Um, and yeah, I just need to check that. <laughs> nice. No, that's fine. Yeah, I actually uh, forgot. Yeah, good to good to double check that one. Um, and I'm curious to ask where where would you like to take out of the lab? You're now a few years into it. You've got a, a solid traction with people using it and loving it. Uh, where where do you see the next? few years going for you are you building the team or expanding or just generally keeping things as they are and i'm i'm really i'm really trying to grow the advisory business um because i i think there's a there's a really good future in that business for us because there's adequate compensation for the risks that we're taking and the um the regulatory hurdles that we've got to jump over all the time. It, it's a, it's a, it's a massive um, job. Um, and so we're adequately compensated for that. Whereas the, the software side of the business alone, I don't think is uh, viable uh, to continue, continue pursuing. So I'm not pursuing that at all. You, you cannot license the software in the U.S., you have to. Um, and from a from a user perspective, it's not that much of a difference, right? It's it's basically. I can't imagine that most people want to, you know, push buttons and pull levers. That they want to just make money. So whether it's you true. managing it or whether it's them, you know, from a user standpoint, it's probably not that much of a difference. True, um, 
True, that that is true. Um, at the end of the day, it's about uh, you know earning earning a profit and performing you know the, for your account. At the end of the day, it is that a lot of my customers do. A lot of my software customers they do like having control, but at the end of the day, they learned that a lot of the control that they thought was going to produce you know an advantage for them ends up not being that way. So so yes, in in it's best for the customer that that I that we're managing everything because we don't ever change from the default settings. We know mm-hmm. that that is the best thing to go do because we've got four years of uh, track record and experience doing this, and we know that's the best. So it's the best for them. Um, so there isn't really a. You're right. There's not a huge difference. It still gets them what they want at the end of the day, mm. and it's easier. You know, it's easier awesome. for them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm curious too. Are there companies you look up to or have inspired you, uh, either in fintech or elsewhere, that you sort of model after or attract? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, Algolab. <laughs> Uh-huh. I inspired. I had this one. I had this one interview where I asked somebody like, "Who is the biggest inspiration?" and uh, and he sat there for a second. He said, "I'm my biggest source of inspiration." <laughs> and at first, I was like, "Ah, oh, that sounds very wise," but in reality, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Funny. I'm going to um, say no. There's not really because, yeah, I'm going to say it's like it's kind of like everything kind of in life, you know, is that everybody tends to do the same thing. And if you want to stand out and succeed, it's always those who take a different approach to it. They're totally. solving an old problem, new using some new way of thinking about it. So I kind of don't like to even watch what everybody else is doing because it might influence <laughs> me in the wrong direction. Yeah. I like to do things differently. And we certainly are different. We know that for sure. Algolab's very different. You know, we've um, we've been dealing with the regulators and we've been dealing with the exchanges and the brokerage companies. We're very, very different. We are a round peg trying to fit into a square hole. Um, yeah. And, and I'm yeah. kind of well, proud that's of the that. innovator. I'm kind of proud yeah, of that. No, that's, that's uh... <laughs> why it's working. That is why it's working. So we don't apologize for that. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it's an issue. It really is. It, it, it makes it. No, I know regulation, re- regulation adapts to, it sort of surrounds the, the shape of the existing companies and the longer they exist and the more powerful they become, the more the, the, the regulation hardens around, whether it be health companies, health insurance, healthcare providers, fintech oh, yeah. banks. It's all like, that. yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's wild. It's really in an, in uh, a blocker to innovation. Um, yeah, which is it's unfortunate. Um, I think we'd see a lot more innovation if, if in healthcare and in financial technology, the regulations would be more uh, preventative, be more reactionary instead of uh, preventative. I, I think that that keeps a lot of founders, keeps a lot of companies small, and prevents a lot of startups from happening. It does. I know, um, but it's it's yeah. it's difficult to once you you get into that whole environment and you learn how it works. You can kind of see how difficult it would be to allow to get into kind of a a mindset where you're allowing more innovation. It, it really is difficult because you've got one branch of the regulators that 
their job and their sole responsibility is to ensure that their members are following the law, the rule of, you know, the letter of the law. They're not allowed to, to decide that, oh, this gray area, it's okay. It's, you know, things are spelt out so specifically that it's basically no. And it doesn't matter what you say. It's they kind of go, well, no, I'm not allowed to let you do that because it says here, right? Yeah. Like, you know, item 426.2, you know, that's yeah. what it says. So I can kind of see how that happens. Um, yeah. You know, it takes, so for example, there's something that we do that is, you know, that they don't like. And so in order for us to continue doing it, um, our only alternative is to go to the CFTC. Um, and, and, uh, you know, apply for, uh, you know, basically write a letter, send it to the, to Washington, to the CFTC in Washington and get, get them to kind of stop and discuss this particular issue. We make an argument for why we should be allowed to do this and, uh, why they should relax the rules in our specific case. That's kind of how you Hmm. start changing, um, the the regulations. Are they, are they receptive? Um, I don't know. We've just started that process, so I'm. It's hard to say. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I don't know. Yeah. I don't think there's any kind of uh, track record that you can look at to see how successful others have been previously in um, petitioning a government agency to make changes in the regulations. Yeah. But I mean, that's the only thing we can do. So that's what we're that's what we're doing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Where, where do you think the market's going? So the, a couple of weeks ago, the virus hit. Markets crashed. 30 something percent, 5%, 40%. Yeah. Still down, seem to be all over the place. Generally, it feels like people are confused about what's what the economic outcome is. The entire world's economy is uh, basically on pause. Uh, major industries like airlines and tourism for many parts of the world are, are completely shut down. Do you have a perspective on what's going on and what's what's coming up in the future i, I kind of do but i but i also um i also don't like to like I, I can't help it but have an opinion about that now but normally i really try hard not to have any opinion about what is going to happen because i feel that might influence me and you know what the decisions that i'm making for my you know investors and my and my company um, so I'd much rather be flexible and free to react to what the markets are doing rather than um, getting into a situation where you committed to this prediction that you've made. And when the markets end up doing the opposite thing, it's difficult psychologically to flip around and say you're wrong. So I don't like really don't like doing that as a, I don't like, so I don't follow the news. I don't watch CNBC uh, just to try to stay in that, you know, that zone where I'm completely flexible and open to anything happening. However, in this particular case, yeah, you can't help, but watch what's going on and, and develop thoughts for, you know, what's happening. And what I'm, what I'm mostly concerned with is, um, I mean, you look at the 50%, you know, decline in the markets in 2008, and you look at the, 
at the financial crisis and the housing on the, uh, the, the, the um, mortgage, you know, issue that caused all that. And you compare that to what's going on now. And it just seems, it just seems so much more serious now. And we've got entire economy that's just been stopped for a month. And the repercussions have to be just all yeah, right. worse. And so why is it that, you know, and, and we were always, we were um, looking, you know, Pro, pro, projecting a um, uh, you know recession anyway, an economic slowdown anyway before the virus, and so now we've got that plus the virus. Um, I don't know. I just don't understand where the strength is coming from. You know this, so this you think it is that, rally. It, yeah, so it is a rally, but it's not. It's not a. Is it a strong rally? I mean, the, the market did crash. So I, I feel there is a correction that took place. Uh, I, I suppose you're alluding to the idea that we, it may not have crashed enough. That, <laughs> that I don't think so. Yeah, I personally, yeah. I don't, and I don't like to even having this. That you know, even saying that, but oh, I know, I know. but I'm looking at. I was you know thinking that. I mean, I don't know, but you know, assuming that sixty percent or even seventy percent might be more appropriate for the circumstance, but I, I mean, I don't know for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's my, most cases, you know, most of the time, I, I think your sentiment is right. When most of the time when the market's moving, there's so many different countries and companies doing so many different things, but rarely, I don't think ever in the history of humanity, has there been one topic that has been on the minds of people throughout the entire world for months at a time, and we and it's a clear thing, you know. We know exactly what it is. It's not complicated. Uh, it's a it's a voluntary decision to shut down everything that we've shut down. One of the like, just put it in perspective for me was I saw on Twitter. There's a guy who was a he was like a counterterrorism manager in Vegas. So his job was to uh, to mitigate, manage, and mitigate any bomb threats in Vegas. And they were specifically trained to to handle it in a way where it didn't shut down any of the casinos for even a minute because the amount of money lost there would be incredibly incredibly high yeah. and right now Vegas has been completely shut down for you know a month it's going to be you know multiple months so I'm I'm with you it is uh it's it is and it's all around the world you know so yeah, yeah it's just and I don't it just doesn't seem like the reaction in the, the equities markets hasn't seem seemed so far to be appropriate. So is but, this a pit for Algo Lab? If people are generally confused about what to do in the equities markets, would you would you say Algo Lab is therefore a stronger value proposition? We're doing great. I mean, we're doing fine. Yeah. We're doing absolutely <laughs> fine. Go, great over here. <laughs> we we go long or short oil. So we we did really well when the when the crash um, first happened because it was uh, led wow. by the energy markets going down, um, crude oil and heating oil and gasoline and uh, yeah so we were doing really well we were short all of those markets so we did extremely wow. well there and then we were caught on the short side of the equities markets going down too so we did very very well. Um, that's incredible. Yeah. So it's, it's that, uh, you can take kind of, I don't want to say take advantage, but you can, 
uh, take advantage of um, markets going up or down with the algorithm, not just think of everything as long only, right? Yeah. Obviously, yeah. markets do go both directions, right? Interesting. Well, Greg, I love this conversation. Where can people reach you if they have further questions or social media or email or? Yeah, they can check out my blog, uh, adventuresofgreg.com. Um, and there's my contact information in there. If they're interested in Algolab, they can visit algolabcapital.com. And uh, yeah, those are the two best ways to get a hold of me. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, no promo codes or discounts for uh, users listening? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Figured I'd ask. Uh, awesome. Well, I, I really enjoyed ch chatting with you. We'll include these links in the show notes and, uh, and have this up soon. So wish you the best and continued success, my man. Hey, Mike. Thanks. It was awesome talking to you. It's always fun talking to you. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. All right. Bye, Greg. The views and opinions expressed on any program are those of the hosts, co-hosts, and guests appearing on the show and do not necessarily reflect the view of the owners and producers of the show. Paid advertisements in form of audio announcements may appear throughout the show, including this one. Advertising can also include print and other digital formats. The owners and producers of Around the Coin do not endorse or evaluate the advertised product, service, or company, nor any of the claims made by the advertisement. All programs are subject to a one-time charge for professional editing fees, for which the interviewing guest or guests may have contributed towards. The owners, producers, hosts, co-hosts, and guests on the show are not financial advisors. Any investment advice or opinion cited during the show is for information purposes only. None of the content is intended to be investment advice. Seek a duly licensed professional for investment advice. If you believe there's been any violation of your copyright, trademark, service mark, or any other type of intellectual property, please inform us in writing by sending an email to legal at aroundthecoin.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.